For the past 10 years, I've been talking about sex, nuns, and martyrs. I didn't know when I started defending religious freedom or the Little Sisters of the Poor that I would spend a decade of my life linking together three words that don't really go together on the surface. But I'll get back to that. I want to talk to you about freedom, about religious freedom. If any of you are nerds like me, you already knew a little bit about religious freedom. You read the Catholic Church's encyclical on the dignity of the human person or St. Pope John Paul II's writings on the importance of protecting the search for God, free from government interference. At the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, the organization that I have the privilege of working at, a nonprofit law firm that defends religious freedom for all people, all religious traditions, we have a phrase for that. Religious freedom is the right to be wrong. We have a hard time with that in our country today, the idea that people would believe different things or think different things. Uh, but, but we have to realize that that's actually a feature and not a bug. That diversity is a feature and not a bug in the way that our society is organized. And religious freedom is a human right, and it's derived from our shared understanding of human nature. We're not just beings floating around with no purpose and no calling. We're individuals, uniquely fashioned, with our eyes fixed on the far horizon, looking toward the transcendent, asking the big questions about who we are and why we are. And in asking these big questions about who we are and why we are, we discover some things. And in actually believing in what we discover, we are exercising this important human right, this human right that no government may lawfully deny. Let me give you an example from my personal life. When I first came to this country, I was born in Mexico. I lived in Miami. And Miami, or the 305, as my friends like to say, Miami was everything you thought it would be. Lush, vibrant, beautiful, hot, very, very humid. <laughs> and in Miami, uh, they practice something called Santeria, a couple of people. And Santeria is an Afro-Cuban religion with roots in West Africa that evolved in different ways in Cuba and in the Americas. And um, they pass on their rituals through animal sacrifice from generation to generation. That generation to generation should sound familiar to any of us that have a religious tradition that likes to pass on the faith. So one day I was driving to my university campus and to my right, I see what looks like someone rubbing a bird on the tires of their car. I thought it was unusual. I didn't really know what to make of it, but I commented on it to one of my friends at school and she happened to be Cuban and said to me, oh, that's a Santero. And what he was doing is taking the blood of a bird and rubbing it on the tires of the car for protection from God. I don't think I need to say that again. And uh, I thought it was unusual. I didn't really understand it. But immediately it came to mind that there are things that other people don't understand about my religion. So it was probably that person's right to be wrong. Fast forward 10 years and I'm living in Washington, D.C., and uh, I have the privilege of landing at the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty. And the first case that gets assigned to me is the case of 
José Merced, from Euless, Texas, Santeria Priest. And of course, the city of Euless, Texas was targeting this man because he was performing goat sacrifice rituals in his home to pass on the priesthood. It turns out that this goat sacrifice is the way that Santeria priests pass on the faith from generation to generation. And it was remarkably interesting to me how Providence works that this is the first case that I had to work on. And of course, you realize then that the city of Euless was doing what governments do all the time. They have blind spots around religion. They make lousy theologians. And these blind spots didn't allow them to see something really important, that they were effectively shutting down this man's religion because they have a tendency not to understand not just major religions, but religions that they're not familiar with, which it, it's what makes religious freedom so important. So let's unpack religious freedom. As Americans living in a free country, we don't really know what religious freedom is. We're so privileged. We live in this incredible country with freedom and rights. And we take for granted and don't realize that we're exercising this freedom every day, that our founders, when they enumerated our inalienable rights, named freedom of religion first, because it's that founding, it's that bedrock that protects us from government power. It's that critical buffer between the state and the individual that allows for true human flourishing. And then what's in our hearts and what's in our minds, it needs to be protected from the government. And so then freedom of worship is not freedom of religion. Let me say that one more time. Freedom of worship is not freedom of religion. Asking you to check your religion at the door when you walk into a government building, when you walk onto a university campus, when you decide to walk into the market and make a profit, that's not religious freedom. That's the second-class citizenship that history has warned us about. It's that second-class citizenship that our founders knew we wanted to reject. And so as global citizens, we all have this human right, religious freedom. As global citizens, we all have duties to the government, and we all have duties to God. So then religious freedom is about duty, it's about humility, and it's about love. Religious freedom and duty. When you encounter Christ or anyone has any kind of religious conversion or powerful religious moment, all of a sudden something changes and they feel compelled to do certain things. They just have to do them. They have to walk out of their home and do something in the outside world, serve in a soup kitchen, help their neighbor. They're inspired to do these good things. You think about someone who's doing a homeless ministry and the look on their faces, that joy of giving of yourself to someone else, giving of even what you don't have to someone else, inspired by love, poured out like a libation. This idea that this compelled duty that is inspired, religiously inspired, is important to defend but it's important to defend it for all kinds of people, for all kinds of religious traditions. And there are three good reasons for that. There's a good reason, a better reason, and the best reason. The good reason is that religious freedom is really important to defend from the government and its blind spots, like I, like I mentioned earlier. Uh, the good reason is 
that it's really easy to win cases against government bureaucrats with really poor reasoning. It makes me think of a case of 11 Buddhists that the Beckett Fund had many years ago where we were defending 11 Buddhists who were getting kicked out of their meeting space because the government thought that their silent meditation might produce too much noise. Ridiculous. The second better reason is that no religion is an island. If you don't have religious liberty, I don't have religious liberty. And we have to team up with people that we disagree with in order to protect this human right. Or a better way to say it is just don't wait for the bear to eat you last. The best reason, and this is really where the fight is today, is that we're fighting over religious freedom because it's people who believe in nothing, nihilists really, who want to attack the idea of believing in anything at all. And we have to work together, people who believe in anything at all, to protect this important human right. And so then religious freedom is not about who God is or if God is. It's about who we are and what we do once we encounter him. Our God is a relational God. He wants to be in relationship with us. He wants us to be in relationship with each other. Love freely given. Love freely accepted. And on the other hand, you have relationships with the government. Relationships with God, unconditional. Relationships with the government, conditional. The government has many ways of controlling us. If you're in prison, full control. If you owe taxes, some control. Points on your driver's license, a little reminder that the government has control, right? And they can decide to leverage that against you at any moment. God will never do that. God will love you. Points, no points. Saint points, no saint points. God will always care for you. No strings attached. No conditions. And so then what's in our hearts and what's in our minds, freely shared and freely given, cannot be compelled and needs to be protected. And it's decision time, my friends, for Christians. Do we really believe in the incarnational reality of our faith, that we are called to ultimate fulfillment of who we are in what we believe? If so, then religious freedom really is about duty, but it's also about something else. It's about humility. People that I love, and we're called to love everyone, there is nothing, nothing I want more for them than for them to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Nothing, nothing I want more. But that's when humility comes in. Because I actually have to get out of the way for them to do that. There is nothing that I can do, show, share, read. Nothing that will make them seek God, make them seek the truth. And we have to recognize that it's not our will, but his will. And that we're just instruments of the Holy Spirit. We are just doors. So then religious freedom is not a political tactic or an evangelistic tool. It's not a political football. It's a human need that the government is not allowed to co-opt for its own purposes. Religious freedom is not an evangelistic tool. It's not a means to an end. It's just a door. It's this common agreement to allow religious conversations to happen between human beings. And the only tool that we have is humility, witnessing authentically in love. That is the way. 
Religious freedom then is about love. And true evangelization is loving well. Knowing that your own timidity, your fear of rejection, your love for the other person in Christ within them is greater than any hypothetical risk. And this mistaken anthropology of tolerance, the idea that tolerance is enough, mere toleration. No, that's just the baseline that painfully enduring each other. That's the definition of tolerance. Painfully enduring each other is sufficient. But that's not love. That's not the commission that was given to us by Jesus Christ and modeled by the Blessed Mother. But if that is the definition of love that our society accepts, then we're in chaos. And I believe that we are. And in the midst of this chaos, one thing is real and needs to be protected, this desire for God. In the midst of the chaos, God is there. As we read in 1 Kings 19.12, Elijah was searching for God. And God, he wasn't in the earthquake and he wasn't in the fire. He was in the whisper. In that soft whispering wind that tells you that you are loved, that you are good. St. Bruno of the Cross and his order have a beautiful, beautiful phrase. The cross is steady while the world is turning. Think about that image the world in chaos, and God right at the center, unmovable. If the world is in chaos and one thing is real, the desire for God and that whispering wind that tells us that we are good and we are loved, then we can talk about the little sisters of the poor because there's nothing more loving than their ministry. The little sisters of the poor are an order of nuns that was founded in France over 180 years ago. And they lovingly and selflessly care for the elderly, poor, and dying until God calls them home. Their ministry is so joyful. You see the joy on their faces when they're serving. You see the joy in their residence. And they go around begging, begging for their daily bread. They call it collecting. It's begging. Okay. And um, they know and they trust that God will give them what they need to take care of the order, but first and foremost, to take care of their residents who they treat as family. Their ministry is healthcare, comprehensive, spiritual and physical. But in 2012, our government, the U.S. government, knew better. And it created something called the contraceptive mandate, which forces all employers to include abortion-causing drugs and services in their employee health care plans, even religious employers that had never included these drugs and services in their plans. I remember in the middle of this lawsuit that the Little Sisters had to bring, uh, one of the residents was interviewed by a major news station, and he said, you know, there's not a lot of sex going on here. And I thought that was a really beautiful way to explain how weird it was that they would force the little sisters to provide these drugs and services. But you all know how this story ends. The Supreme Court protected the little sisters of the poor twice. So then why is the government doing this? Why is this the perfect example of religious freedom as this critical buffer between the all-powerful state and the individual, you and me? Because for you and me, we know that our rights come from a higher power. For you and me, 
that higher power is God. But for some people, the mere concept of God, the mere idea of God is enough to remind them that our rights are not subservient to the state, that our rights don't come from the government and so the government cannot take them away. And the government did try all kinds of tricks to get at the little sisters. We'll give you a special administrator. Just sign this form here, sister, and you can give us permission to hand out these drugs and services for you. Aside from how insulting it was to the intelligence of Mother Superior, who was dealing with these negotiations, it became really clear to me that the government truly doesn't understand the definition of the word complicit. Like I said earlier, they make lousy theologians. And so it's ludicrous to think that you would ask the little sisters of the poor who spend all of their lives devoting themselves to protecting the end of life not to protect it at the beginning of life. It's these little things, these concessions that the government wants us to make. And that reminds me of martyrdom. Martyrs die for big things or small things. They die for big things and small things that have big consequences. St. Thomas Becket. St. Thomas Becket stopped King Henry II from meddling in the affairs of the church. And what a price he paid martyred by the king's knights. Or you can think about little things, little things you're asked to do. 17th century Christians in Japan who were given a choice, gruesome torture or stepping on an icon of the church, the face of the Blessed Mother, the face of Christ. Just step on the icon. No one has to know. You don't have to tell anyone, do anything. Just step on it. It's not a big deal. Just sign the form. The Japanese peasants chose death. The little sisters chose to fight. And so have I. I do think we're called to die for our faith. And I pray to God that we'll all be ready the day that that knock comes on our door for martyrdom. But that's not what we're being called to do today. Today, we're being called to live for it. Thank you.